Hi, welcome back to Freshwater Perspectives. Today we're talking about Lake Victoria and the Nile Perch. Stay tuned. what is up hello matt another week um mm -hmm. what is up is work just work doing work um okay in the area can't touch upon it specifics too much but dealing with my area has a lot of nitrate issues so that's what oh um i'm dealing with right now groundwater um, or surface water groundwater well and surface okay. water too okay i guess right but uh mm -hmm. yeah isn't that interesting so yeah it's something it's a, i've read about but not yeah. not actually experienced so yeah so i'm learning more about like resonance time what's happening on the surface you know oh, it can be a couple yeah. years till it's going to the bottom and mm -hmm. uh i think it'd be a good case study for lack of a better word like there's just a lot of stuff out there that the general public reads so like helping the general public understand um, yeah 100%. yeah so for nitrates for those who don't know um can cause health problems big one mm -hmm. is it's called blue baby syndrome where yep. nitrates get into babies and that reduces the efficiency of oxygen uptake through the bloodstream and if you don't have limited oxygen you might have that like bluish coloration to you and that's why they call it blue baby syndrome um it, to my knowledge can be fatal i don't mm -hmm. that, that might be rare instances but if so if your nitrates are too high for say for like an adult, it might be okay, but for young children, babies, it can be quite a big deal. So something to think about. That's why um, the EPA at the state level, I guess it could go state to state, but like drinking water standards would be, you should have nitrates less than 10 milligrams per liter, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, we're an education podcast, so don't quote us any of the specifics, just here for education, doing your own research. But um yeah so we have a very our area is really it's called karst um yep. in the driftless area mm -hmm. um and yeah just a lot of easy ways for surface water interaction stuff happening on the surface to get into groundwater so okay um yeah yep so you have agriculture or other stuff happening you know what that can happen or what goes on the land can really get into our drinking water really quickly so it's like a big big issue yeah yeah okay and it doesn't go away quickly i'm coming to find so no um yeah. uh yeah nitrate to my knowledge is a pretty stable form of nitrogen mm -hmm. um i think you would have to do some yeah you would need some sort of uh treatments like if the if the water goes anoxic you can maybe have some denitri denitrification occurring where they convert that nitrate to nitrogen gas but if that's down in the groundwater, it can't really escape. So then you just have dissolved nitrogen yeah. gas in the water. So be interesting. So yeah, there is like reverse osmosis can help. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. But it doesn't fully get rid of it. So it, it's like oh, a, a, a factor of concentration. Mm -hmm. So like if you have your your water source, I think what I was reading was like ninety five percent removal. So if, you know, okay. if you have if your water source is two hundred milligrams per liter, 
95% of 200 milligrams is 10 milligrams, mm-hmm. right? So you would still be over that threshold. So you still have to get like your source water to a certain point. Mm-hmm. I think they have, there's a couple other things that they can do. Um, for those of you who don't know too, if you're worried about your drinking water, say you're on city water, mm-hmm. they, at least in some areas, you know, there's, they have to show you or have on file what, what the readings are. They have to report to the EPA, be like, oh, like we took our samples and we're this, this, and this. Um, and mm-hmm. usually the general public has that freedom to know in all situations so um you can tell like if you're if you're on city water for example you can you can do it but if you're on the like a well like really really get your water tested Mm -hmm. um, because you you are the owner of that well Mm -hmm. and effectively you have to figure you know be responsible for what those levels are yeah for lack of a better word i don't want to say responsible right like you're not you're not causing the water levels to be a certain way but yeah but you're you're most affected by them, right? And like you said, that's not yeah. being monitored. To so. my understanding, yeah, you're you're responsible for what comes out of your tap. How about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, there you um, go. yeah, there's organizations that you can get your water tested. For example, mm-hmm. we like my organization runs like nitrates for free. This is not a, a separation of my my work in this. I'm not not talking mm-hmm. about like just for an example though. There's some government organizations that'll run. Yeah, you know those tests. So yeah, some universities, land grant universities, extension offices yeah. will do similar things as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. so there's a little fun little public service announcement. So if you're interested, um, if you have a young kid really and you live out in the country, really get that tested, get that looked at. Um, bacteria yeah, can be a big thing too. If so, you're in an ag heavy area as well. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, that's... Well, that's my update. So that some flooding okay. still here happening a little bit, and. Uh, Got my canoe down from Ooh. out of storage, so nice. I'm gonna have a little bro day and just go on the river. Okay, it's warming up now, <laughs> so it. that sounds that sounds good. Okay, yeah. How about you? Yeah, so Rachel, so we're so she's been off for about a week already, and she's getting like cabin fever. She's getting a little stir crazy. She's just so used to being busy all the time. So she wants to yeah. resurface our kitchen table and chairs, and I said, go for it. So we're mm-hmm. going to go buy a sander and some stain and some clear coat. And she's going to go to town on our kitchen table. So I said, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So do you guys that's still... her little. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for interrupting. No, do you guys just, still walk yeah. around Kiesel Park? So funny enough, we were just there last weekend because Auburn had City Fest. So oh. it was just, it was nice. It was so they had like the whole kind of whole thing of Kiesel Park was opened and they had the Raptor Center was there. So they had some some birds they were showing. The reptile rescue was there. The nature preserve was there. So they had all different animals that people could see. They had a bunch of activities for kids, of course. A lot of local food trucks were there and just local vendors. So people just kind of making stuff. So there was uh, this one guy did a lot of woodworking stuff. So we got like some cool little coasters and stuff, for the new apartment and some and some decorations, oh, nice. but it was it was a nice it was a nice way to spend the day. Traffic was insane because the parking wasn't great. Um, oh, I yeah. mean, you you know where that is, so that so yeah. right when you go past our apartment and right when you get to that soccer complex, yep. that's where the traffic was backed up to. Ooh, yeah. So then we still had to go all the way to that corner, turn right, and still head down the road a little bit. So huh. it was slow. It took us about half an hour to actually get about three miles down the road, mm-hmm. but it was it was a fun time. And then yeah. we are about 90% done with most of the wedding stuff. We have 
like the the flatware we have plates and linens and stuff picked out we're just trying to hammer down all the numbers and stuff so the next big thing is wedding invites are going to go out soon so oh my god yeah we're getting so close <laughs> dude tell rachel to um do we ever do that couple of, like that fire tower hike no we didn't we never did Oh, dude, you gotta go on the fire tower hike. Yeah, what it's she's actually she brought head. it up a few times. Now that she's now that she's got so much free time, because she, she has wanted to go on a hike. I've just been lazy and tired. I just haven't wanted to lately. Smith Smith Mountain Fire Tower. Okay, I'm gonna write that down. Put it in my notes. Smith Smith Mountain. Smith Mountain. Smith Mountain. Okay, I will forward that on. Or um, did we ever go together with the Talladega National Forest? Yes, we did go to Talladega before. That's cool. No, well, we went to Talladega, but the forest. I think we went to the forest as well. Yeah, that had fun. A couple. I think that's what the lookout. The lookout point that that's on some of like Alabama's mm-hmm. things. That's that's Talladega yeah. National Forest. Yeah, the further you go north, the more rocky and kind of mountainous. That's like right in the foothills of the yeah. Appalachians. Uh, it gets really pretty up there. It's just very flat yeah, down there. Yeah. So, <laughs> but besides that, that's Alabama. um, that's pretty much it so yeah. we haven't started packing anything yet because we're still really early before we move but we're um yeah yeah we're looking at we got some new i got a, a new tv stand for about 25 dollars on walmart clearance so there you go yeah it was just one of those things where i passed it and i was like this isn't 25 dollars." and i rang it up and i was like well might as well there you go <laughs> dude i've been selling stuff for in preparation of the bebe Mm-hmm. I've been selling all my childish things, you know. <laughs> oh no, my Lego! I sold a GoPro and like a drone. And I was like, <sighs> man, yeah. yeah. I guess I guess dads don't play with those like kind of toys anymore, huh? I was like, look at this peasantry. And I just he threw. <laughs> you don't you don't want to have the GoPro on your head during the birth, you know? Get a <laughs> yeah. Like, get out of the way. <laughs> I need to get I need to get the shot. This is for shot. posterity. <laughs> Like those YouTubers that just do that, they just walk around with the GoPro twenty four seven. No, I remember when I flipped eBay. You know, on eBay flipping, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they had. I mean, you have social media people for everybody, but they had oh, yeah. people. And that's how I learned how to do it, to be honest. So, like, they would they would GoPro, you know, have a GoPro strapped, and then they would go through the, the racks and tell you like, <laughs> "This is good. This is not." I remember when I was in. Well, I went over to Columbus one time and there was a guy doing it. He had a GoPro on. No way. And I was like, stop it. So he was like showing all of his like swag to his, I don't know. His, his followers. Yeah, his followers. Yeah. And I was like, just like trying to get to the racks before he did. Cause I didn't, you know, hmm. obviously disclose right. what I was doing. <laughs> all right. He was an expert too. He definitely knew what, what, what the good stuff was. So yeah, you had to get there mm-hmm. before him. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, just goes to show, man, there's a. There's a niche for for everyone. There's a following for everything. So yeah, so but, we we I mean I had the GoPro on when we went fishing a couple times, but nothing crazy. Yeah, I remember your. I think it was our reel on the on the our Instagram page that has the most views. Where you lost that bike, the emotional damage. <laughs> I still look at it like once a month. I go find it. It's like uh, funny. It's because yeah, that's totally because we had a too small of a <laughs> net, a little Walmart net. I just like how in the beginning you were like, oh no, it's it's a team sport. You got this. Then she loses it. You're just in all the beeps. It was supposed to be uh, for those, yeah, we did a we went fishing, like a little reservoir. 
up north mm-hmm. on giant muscular uh, pike mm-hmm. with this little reservoir and then yeah the whole goal of the day was to try to get one for we we're gonna do fish tacos oh. so the saddest thing was is that we had all the fish taco like fixins ready to go mm-hmm. it's like we just need to get one dumb fish just one fish and then yeah had a we it was right there and then it, it was, was gone a, it was a pretty good sized one at least from what the video said yeah we hooked into a couple so. good ones they're yeah. always fun to hook into yeah ah, pike, I need to go back pike are fun there. i know i don't i'm gonna have like one like solo trip this summer i think and that'll be like the last hurrah and i'm gonna go back up there and catch some giants nice nice maybe all right but i think that's all i had but i do have okay. some little news clipping that i stumbled across so you talked about pfas in a couple episodes already and I think Riley dedicated an entire episode to PFAS. So if you haven't listened to that, so go ahead and check that out. But some researchers at the University of British Columbia have designed a filter to remove PFAS and other for, uh, forever chemicals from drinking water. So if you've already listened, you're aware that these PFAS and similarly uh, structured chemicals pose a pretty serious emerging risk to drinking water and human health in general. And these University of British Columbia researchers' specific technique and and filter design allows for the near-complete removal of not only one type of PFAS, but a pretty pretty large swath of the different lengths and and chain combinations for PFAS. Hmm. And not only can they capture them, but they can destroy the filter and actually remove and destroy the the PFAS chemicals themselves, making them no longer hazardous because that was at least from the interview I saw from the, from the principal investigator, he, his kind of big thing was stressing that yes, we can design filters to remove PFAS and forever chemicals, but then your filters become hazardous waste over time. Right. So then you're just kind of moving the problem somewhere else, but at least their technique allows them to destroy those PFAS chemicals and make them no longer hazardous. Uh, currently, this has only been proven at the benchtop scale, but the team seems pretty confident they can scale it up. I don't know what the cost would be. I'm sure it would be exponential, but that's yeah. how it usually is with an emerging technology is things kind of start off really expensive and then get cheaper and cheaper. So it seems like there wow. is there's hope around the corner, which is which is exciting. So good job, engineers. Keep it keep it up. Crazy. Yeah, huh, that's exciting. Yeah. But anything else? That always gets we... me like thinking about PFAS is the flavor of the day and it's like gosh yeah. what what chemicals are we using right now all that in 20 no. years we're gonna be like oh shoot mm-hmm. no kidding yep so I mean, that's a fun note yeah <laughs> from that fun note we're gonna go to an even just as fun a note this will not be the most uppity of episodes today but we're talking about yeah. Uh, Lake Victoria and the Nile Perch. So the topic itself seems pretty benign on the surface, but once you kind of start to dig deeper and peel back the layers, the Nile Perch fishery of Lake Victoria is about so much more, including Russian arms dealing, prostitution rings, and a bona fide environmental catastrophe. So, yeah. So let's let's, okay. let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Starting off strong, aren't I? Jeez. <laughs> so let's go ahead and dive in. Now, if I'm honest, uh, this is an incredibly complicated story, and I'm going to try my best to do it justice. There's a lot of moving parts here. There was an award-winning documentary called Darwin's Nightmare. That was the main reason for me doing a deep dive into this story. And go ahead and check that out, because it's a, it's a pretty harrowing and kind of sobering 
film, they went a pretty deliberate route where they didn't have a narrator. They just have, they're just following people around and it's just what you just see what's happening, man. And they follow all different types of people from the Russian pilots that we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, homeless children living on the street, the fishermen, the guards at particular research centers, and some of the people working at the processing plants. It's like I said, it's pretty sobering. It just it lays it all out there. It doesn't it doesn't hmm. mince any words. But interesting. Yeah. So Lake Victoria, as we're as we've covered already, is Africa's largest lake, and its waters are shared by the countries of Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. And its watershed includes roughly 76,000 square miles of Eastern Africa and includes over 30 million people in two more countries, being Rwanda and Burundi. The lake's fishery produces an annual income of about 600 million U.S. dollars while employing over 3 million people. All that being said, like any other incredibly valuable resource, it is being overexploited. But before we get into the sociological impacts of the fishery, let's try to focus on the science. So that's what we... It's kind of the main goal of this podcast at the end of the day. So the current major fishery species include the pelagrin and the introduced Nile tilapia and Nile perch. The Nile perch was introduced to, into Lake Victoria in the 1950s from stock from Lake Albert and Lake Turkana as a means of injecting Lake Victoria with the valuable fish to support a commercial fishery. It should be noted that the proposal and subsequent introduction were met with staunch opposition, but decision makers at the time were likely blinded by the future profits. Once the fish were introduced, academics around the world kept a watchful eye on what would later become an ecological and sociological case study. In the decades after the perch were introduced, the project looked to be a huge flop as returns were small, both in size of the fish and quantity of fish caught. However, starting in the 1980s, multiple studies would go on to report an explosive increase in Nile perch stocks in conjunction with decline of native species. The greatest impact was observed in a group of cichlids called haplochromines that were abundant throughout the lake prior to the Nile perch's introduction, but were now nearly extinct in the 1980s. This observation was corroborated by newspapers, academic articles, and popular magazines, but most were conjecture and opinion pieces with very little data. That changed with a 1992 paper by Witte et al. published in Environmental Biology of Fishes, who looked to actually quantify the decline of haplochromines in Lake Victoria and also wanted to examine how the distribution of species within the lake has changed to try to quantify the speed of such changes. So their kind of main hypothesis was that, well, one, you should see, you're probably going to see a lot less of these cichlids, but then you're probably going to see them unevenly distributed throughout the different ecoregions in the lake so you're not going to see them evenly distributed like they used to be there's probably going to be a lot less in that open water pelagic zone right because that's where all the huge nile perch are they're probably going to be hiding a lot more in that the kind of shallower bays right which again makes sense because it's a lot of refugia and, and and things like that so the authors mentioned that the number of endemic fish species, including the incredible cichlids we discussed in my last episode was about 300 in total uh, according to a couple different articles from around the time, the researchers of this paper collected monthly samples of fish species at 11 different locations within Lake Victoria between 1977 and 1990, which was honestly a really impressive and like in-depth study. So they were specifically targeting the diverse cichlids, but they quantified any collected fish. 
when the study first started, the research team state that the Lake Victoria population had more than 250 species distributed across its different habitats, such as open water, near shore, and shallow bays. And between 1979 and 1982, the team encountered about 110 different species, already half what was originally believed. Although this number can be skewed by sampling bias as they were using, again, they were mostly targeting the cichlids and they were using a combination of trawl nets and just line and uh, rod and reel casting. Uh, but however, that number dropped to only 12 by 1990, which is a lot harder to refute a sampling bias because they were using the same techniques in 79 as they were in 1990. So just in a span of about 10 years, they saw a decrease of what's that 90 species and how many they caught. That's crazy. Yeah, this is, this all happens really quickly. So, and don't worry, I have more numbers. So in case I didn't convince you, uh, in 1979 and 1980, the researchers dragged trawlers for 10 minutes and counted the number of haplochromines in the net, followed that up in 1981, 1982, as well as 1987 and 88. In the first trawling period of 1979 and 1980, the average number of haplochromines in the trawl net was 2,300. In 81 and 82, that number was halved to about 1,300. And in 87, 88, the average number of haplochromines in the trawl net was 0 0.2, less than one fish. Jeez. In case you're a math whiz out there, that is a 99.99991% decrease in 10 years. Oh, my God. Practical, practical extinction. Practical, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeesh. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the catch rate of Nile perch increased from zero kilograms per hour in 1972 to 30 kilograms per hour in 1986. So decrease in the endemic species, rapid increase in the invasive Nile perch. And I'm not really sure what else to say. <laughs> the only somewhat silver lining from this paper was that haplochromines and other prey fishes of the Nile perch seemingly found refugia in the shallow bays and gulfs of the lake as the number of species present at those shallower depths decreased like anywhere else in the lake, but was consistently higher than other depths. It's also worth mentioning that commercial fishing within the shallow bays of Lake Toria was outlawed at some point between the 70s and 90s, which further protected the species in this region from overfishing as well as predation by perch. So... Again, kind of like they expected, the shallow areas were kind of regions of refugia, but by and large, there's species that were out and out just extinct from the from the lake. Again, mm -hmm. in 19, what was that? In 1979, they recorded about 110 different species, 1990, only 12. So, hmm. yeah. So the issues facing Lake Victoria and its valuable fishery haven't improved since the 1990s. A 2008 paper by Najiru et al. published in Lakes and Reservoirs Research and Management outlined the current status of the fishery in the 21st century. They stress the importance of the fishery to most of the African continent as, as its annual yield of 500,000 metric tons is in many cases the only source of protein for countless people. The authors noted several areas of major concern, including eutrophication, deteriorating water quality, invasive fish, invasive macrophytes, overfishing, and export bans put on them by select global powers. 
The paper was remarkably thorough and even covered the economic earnings from Lake Victoria fishery between 1970 and the 2000s. Like I mentioned in the previous paper, the fishery as a whole started very slowly in the 1970s. In that time, the average yield was about 30,000 metric tons, but that number exploded to 560,000 metric tons in the early 90s. Since then, the yield has decreased slightly to 500,000. As we already discussed in the previous paper, that stark rise in yield between the 1970s and 1990s was overwhelmingly due to the introduction of the Nile perch, which uh, accounted for about 90% of the total yield, to be exact. To put some value on these numbers, the authors of this paper cite that foreign exchange earnings from Kenyan fish exports increased from 400,000 to 66 million between 1980 and 2003 which is a 16,400% increase, by the way. Other countries along the lake saw similar profits, with Tanzania's fish exports increasing from 8.2 million to 112 million between 1982 and 2003. That represented a 1,265% increase. This does not include profits made by issuing fishing licenses and related permitting. And just in case the value and impact of this fishery isn't clear, just between 2000 and this paper's publishing in 2008, the number of fishers and related jobs increased from about 500,000 500, to over 3 million. So rapid, rapid increase in the fishery, rapid increase in value. And did you say they're, did you comment already on like how they're, they're getting these fish? Is it all hook and line or there's some net so too? I'll get into the different techniques. So I don't go too in depth in the different techniques used. I'll admit, mm-hmm. um, I do get into the practices a little bit, so I'll save yeah. that. But by and large, the main techniques are gill netting, gill netting, trawling, just any different techniques to get as much fish as possible. Not very sustainably yeah. done. Yeah. Jeez. It's not, not a sustainable practice. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of hooking lines. There's a lot of seining near shore for smaller species and then straight up trawling or gill netting, passive gill netting in the, in the open Crazy. water. Mm-hmm. So because of Lake Victoria's valuable fishery, people have been flocking to populate its watershed, which has resulted in the lake itself becoming increasingly deteriorated since the Nile Perch's introduction. The lake as a whole has received increasing amounts of nitrogen and phosphorus, leading to the lake becoming uh, being pushed more and more towards a eutrophic system dominated by harmful algal species like cyanobacteria. The top-heavy mm-hmm. food web and nutrient pollution have combined to create an ecosystem that is devoid of planktivorous species that would ordinarily keep the algae and other plankton in check, not to mention the usual issues associated with high product, uh, primate productivity and cyanobacteria, such as an increased occurrence of toxin episodes or hypoxic or anoxic events. Prior to the now purchase dominance, the anoxic zone of Lake Victoria was exclusive to the open water zone in water deeper than 200 feet. A 2001 survey found that the anoxic zone had creeped up to depths close to 130 feet, which has reduced the amount of oxygenated habitat for fish by about 50%, according to a 2005 study. There is no historical data available for phytoplankton abundance, but secchi disc measurements go as far back as 1928 for Lake Victoria. I don't know if we've mentioned what a secchi disc is on this podcast, but just imagine a kind of circular dinner plate looking thing with four quadrants and the quadrants are alternating uh black panel, white panel, black panel, white panel. 
and just the way you get a psyche disc reading more or less is you lower it down in the water column until you just can't see it anymore and that's your psyche disc reading it was created by a what was it, an italian friar out uh riley yes yeah father secchi i believe um back in i don't remember the exact year but it's been used for centuries honestly and it's a mm-hmm. nice quick and dirty measurement for water clarity keep in mind that clarity could be due to phytoplankton it could be due to just stuff floating in the water total suspended solids but if you're studying your system for a long time again it can be a quick and dirty measurement for in some cases phytoplankton so the secchi dip- angelo secchi there it is what year <laughs> yep this is 1865, but gosh, I thought it was earlier than that. I thought it was earlier than that too, but okay. The 19th Let century. Let me look. Hmm. I mean, if that's the date, that's the date. Maybe like the uh, the more, I guess, official <laughs> Secchi as okay. it is now. Yeah, that's fine. That's, that's okay. So that works. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there you go. So it's been used for uh, about 150 years. Yeah, I thought it was more than that, but anyway, that's fine. Oh, well. Yeah. Anyway, so the Secchi depth for Lake Victoria in 1928 was between 23 and 26 feet. Follow-up studies in 2000 and 2005 found Secchi depth measurements between two and five feet. So a massive decrease in water clarity, which is likely due to a drastic increase in phytoplankton. Mm -hmm. That can cause all sorts of problems that we've already talked about in previous podcasts. So I'm not going to go too in-depth into into all the problems related to cyanobacteria and harmful algal blooms, but we've already discussed lake mixing too in Riley's episode on killer African lakes, but in short, lake mixing is crucial for the redistribution of oxygen and nutrients throughout a lake system and is also a very important process for the survival of many aquatic species. Current conditions have Lake Victoria mixing less frequently, meaning that previously mentioned anoxic layer is likely to keep creeping up as the years go. Now we've already discussed the invasive Nile perch and those issues, but Lake Victoria is also suffering from exotic water hyacinth. The authors of this 2008 paper write that water hyacinth was introduced into Lake Victoria in the late 1990s. Personally, I've heard a lot about invasive water hyacinth, but I wasn't aware of exactly what makes it harmful, if I'm honest. So in the case of Lake Victoria, the invasive macrophyte blocks popular fishing or transport routes, tangling itself in the props of passing boats. Furthermore, it is essentially makes seining or dragging any equipment through the water impossible, which, which makes sense. It just completely dominates whatever area it's, it's rooted into. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, While this may sound like a positive for endemic species, the reality is that water hyacinth is just as harmful to wildlife. So from an ecological perspective, water hyacinth completely covers whatever part of the lake that they inhabit, which blocks light penetration and completely excludes any phytoplankton or other photosynthetic organisms. This creates issues because water hyacinth release oxygen directly into the atmosphere rather than into the surrounding water like phytoplankton do meaning that areas underneath the macrophyte can become hypoxic or completely anoxic in extreme cases, which obviously excludes any organisms that could take advantage of the cover it provides. All that being said, the authors are quick to note that species with lower oxygen requirements have been thriving within the water hyacinth, 
in the more well oxygenated boundary regions between the water hyacinth and the open water zones can be quite diverse. So the invasion of the water hyacinth appears to be complicated, but it is certainly further reducing the amount of quality habitat available to native fishes. Anything to add so far, Riley? I'm really bombarded. Yeah, the hyacinth with... one's interesting. Yeah, again, yeah, I've heard a lot about it because I like I know it's a problem, but I didn't know exactly what makes it a problem other than it just getting in the way. Yeah, and then I think too, like the, I mean, depending on your system, the blocking out of sunlight mm -hmm. is a big one. Mm -hmm. So it could lead to low oxygen, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever's yeah, going I'm sure under it. Depending on how much, how big the system is, or how shallow it is, I'm sure it can make mixing difficult as well too. You know, it can drastically change the water temperature. You're not getting <laughs> yeah. that wind action, right? Yeah, it can it can really mess up just mess in up the way. Systems. Yeah, Ugh. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we've already covered the overfishing and the overexploitation part of smaller sized individuals in the previous African Great Lakes episode. So I'm going to skip ahead to the fishing ban imposed by certain countries, including the European Union. So according to Najiru et al. Maintaining the quality of the harvested fish has been a major challenge facing the Nile perch fishery when it tries to target larger markets. The European Union has stepped in several times to impose export bans on the fishery due to, to name a few things, processing fish by unregistered factories, hand the improper handling of fish once landed, the use of chemicals to harvest fish, and outbreaks of salmonella and cholera in harvested fish. These bans have proven devastating to the fishery as they can result in price reductions between 45 and 67% due to lack of overseas demand. Jeez. Yeah. The whole, so um, we had an uh, individual um, at Auburn, this is a little side, but like mm -hmm. processing and just like knowing where your seafood comes from mm -hmm. and like the, parameters around how it was caught is such a huge issue we can mm -hmm. do a whole um thing about that too like yeah like um shrimping for example like slave boats and stuff it's like she's like to yeah i mean even here oh well, even if you want not, not just shrimp but catfish we had a uh guest speaker come and he was asked about some of the major challenges facing you know american like the american aquaculture and he said, well, it's the kind of paradox between the requirements for like in-country aquaculture setups versus imported uh, mm -hmm. fish, right? So over in, you know, whatever country they're getting these imported catfish from, there's no requirements or there's a lot looser requirements on how those fish are being handled what antibiotics are being treated with throughout their life etc mm -hmm. where here in america and it's good the usda has very 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 strict guidelines for how these fish can be handled before yeah. they're actually served to people so it makes the price go up here versus them being a lot cheaper overseas so it doesn't make sense you're actually hurting your own your own economy a little bit you know it's pretty it's, interesting yeah. yeah it's complex you know you're getting a higher quality product here because you're having all like, what, like <laughs> it doesn't make sense, right? So why are you having? Yeah. If it's a, if you're saying it's a health risk to expose these animals to these products, why are you not imposing that same uh, restrictions on imported meat, right? Imported fillets. It doesn't doesn't make sense. That's crazy. Yeah. 
I wonder, yeah, there's so much, just the whole international trade of fish too. Mm-hmm. The other whole, but it's like, I wonder at some point, like with, with shipping costs, right? Like you at think. what point, what point does shipping it overseas, like mm-hmm. when will that not be viable? And then like, cause yeah. like, will there be a point where like seafood, U.S. seafood, like mm-hmm. we ship in a lot, right? Mm-hmm. International export, like you're saying, but like, I wonder at some point, does that become not profitable? Yeah. I like mean, inland, there'll be inland yeah. shrimp. Oh, I'm going to do a thing about this. I'm going to do yeah. it. I'm writing it down. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a huge, I mean, aquaculture is, I'd say it's as far as agriculture goes in raising animals, aquaculture is one of the faster growing ventures here in America. I think that's key. And we're not, well, I'm not educated, but it's like, I think there might be something there. You know what I'm saying? Like at some point, I would argue there is years plus from now, like I think the, the, to raise stuff internally, you know? Yeah. Or it could be, yeah, I'm so uneducated, but like, Mm -hmm. isn't that how like us, um, was able to last couple of years, like, uh, oil for example like in in within the united states borders that's why like it became economically viable to yeah to to do it here rather than mm-hmm. bring it in yeah and like the oil reserves etc yeah no absolutely and i think I that's gonna be the be same wrong. for aquaculture oh sorry <laughs> all right so let's dive back in so we talked about the ecological impacts let's go ahead and start to kind of get into the sociological part of the story so i can deliver on my promise here that i made at the start of the episode so in addition to the economic and ecological struggles facing Lake Victoria, Nijiru et al. also provides some context into how the people living around and working on Lake Victoria are being affected as well. First, the authors mention that because the licenses, permits, and equipment required for legal fishing are so expensive, illegal fishing and piracy are rampant in Lake Victoria. Not to mention its sheer size and location on the border of three countries makes enforcement very challenging. In 2006, there were 115 fishery staff covering over 1,400 landing sites around Lake Victoria. So like I mentioned earlier, that I wasn't going to get into exactly the techniques used. It's just more of people are doing whatever they want because they know they're not going to get caught. Jesus. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's a conundrum. It's, it's unfortunate. Like international waters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the classic tragedy of the commons, right? There's no sense mm-hmm. of ownership over this over this resource. So everyone's yeah. just like, I need to get as much as I can get because then I can make more profit than that guy kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's unfortunate. So to further feed into the temptation to partake in illegal practices, federal fishery staff are woefully underpaid and undersupported, making them highly susceptible to bribes or intimidation by illegal outfits. In one particularly shocking example, the film crew of Darwin's Nightmare was following and interviewing a night guard as he was standing at his post protecting the entrance to a fisheries research center. The guard, wa- the guard while holding a bow and poisoned arrows, told the film crew Stop. he was being paid. <laughs> yep. So I'll, I'll repeat that again. So the guard, while holding a bow and poisoned arrows, told the film crew he was being paid one U.S. dollar per day to protect this research facility, where any day a truck full of heavily armed assailants could raid the complex any day like they've done several times before. Needless to say, corruption is unfortunately very rampant. 
So yeah, that was another kind of sobering part of that documentary. The guy's literally yeah. sitting there. He's like shaking because he has a bow and arrow and just any day, any day, anytime, just, you can have a truck full of seven guys just coming right around the corner. And yeah, at that point too, you'd be like, there's no point. Why? What, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> to get into the kind of last bits here, the film crew of Darwin's nightmare also followed a group of Russian pilots at first what appears oh geez there it is sorry yep so to kind of get into the kind of last bits here the film crew of darwin's nightmare also followed a group of russian pilots at first watch it appears that the men are just sat around playing cards but it quickly becomes obvious as the documentary continues that the men are participants in an underground operation where the pilots bring occasional shipments of illegal rifles and other firearms in exchange for the best fish to be brought back to russia while in town awaiting their supply, the pilots support an entire prostitution ring within the area to make things worse. While the pilots bring the best fish out of country for essentially no profit to the fishermen that caught them, factories take rotting carcasses and deep fry them for sale. Some of these towns on top of that have HIV infection rates as high as 43%, leaving fishermen and their families weak and eventually unable to support themselves. The documentary is incredibly sobering. And like I mentioned at the beginning, I absolutely encourage folks out there to watch it. There's plenty more that I left out to kind of, you know, out of respect for, for the film. Didn't want to kind of summarize the whole thing here for everybody. Uh, there's another part where there's, you're following around this factory worker woman and she's, so they, they're just throwing these carcasses out, right, to deep fry. But there's mm -hmm. like so many carcasses that they're just sitting there rotting. And as they're rotting, they're giving <sighs> off ammonia right so this woman that's hanging the carcasses to dry before deep frying she's actually partially blind because of all the ammonia she's been uh exposed to dude yeah so that's definitely... like sometimes there's like you hear those like quotes where it's like in the united states like even very low income people it's just that's why yeah it's no, it's incomparable like, yeah it's just incomparable right? you just, just don't understand what it could yeah, be like it's, in other areas. it's not even apples and oranges it's like apples Sorry, and, not to get meta like, on people yeah it's no. just, isn't that crazy Oof. i mean that was kind of the whole point of why i wanted to to cover this topic right because i'm sure a lot mm -hmm. of people didn't know about it i certainly yeah. i thought i knew about the nile perch and what the problem they were i didn't realize how widespread ecologically economically and social sociologically it was so mm -hmm. So to kind of wrap things up here over the last two episodes, uh, what I've done here is I've just kind of tried to cover how the African Great Lakes as an entire region are in deep decline, unfortunately. Lake Victoria in particular is being hit the hardest due to the introduction of Nile perch, which has completely decimated native fish stock and supported a large and corrupt fishery that is seemingly on the verge of implosion. Like, I mean, just like we mentioned just a second ago, it's kind of easy for us to sit here and just go right down the list, right? And we can say that, you know, we can institute a slot limit for the perch. So at this point, we keep the fishery sustainable. You can remove the water hyacinth and install some refugia for native fishes to spawn and hide from the perch. You can institute a total maximum daily load for countries in the watershed to help minimize incoming nutrients. And you can, you know, just put more money towards law enforcement. But mm -hmm. it's just, it's not that simple, right? It's easy for us to sit yeah. here and say this is all this is all they have to do, but it's much more complicated than that. And at the end of the day, this region just needs a lot of help. So I'm just just trying to spread the word and hope people um, hope I hope it gets it. But between 
that paper's writing and even just a couple weeks ago, um, recent news doesn't seem to point in the direction of this area improving. So Uganda is currently in the process of mining sand out of the Luira, can't pronounce that, L-W-E-R-A, Luira wetland, which has been shown to be a vital nutrient sink, preventing even more from getting into Lake Victoria. So I, like I said, I really just wanted to share this, this story with the listeners and I hope, uh, I hope everyone enjoyed it. So good job. Thanks. That's yeah. Crazy. This was tragedy of the commons. That's yeah. Another classical case of tragedy of the commons, but hopefully, mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully like we talked about with the Arapaima fishery in in Brazil, hopefully they can institute some sort of, I just don't think it's that simple with this just because the sheer one, the sheer size of the lake and the fishery itself. And to the fact that you have three countries directly on the shores of the lake that are all competing for that resource, right? They're all competing with each other for the export profits. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's complicated. So, yeah. Yeah. But that's all I got. Huh? Awesome, man. Yeah. Nice work. Thanks. But, um, oh yeah. Email. So if anybody wants to send us any feedback or any, advice or topics for future shows you can go ahead and shoot us an email at fw perspectives podcast at gmail.com and i will see you next week buddy all right see you matt